please take a seat. Uh, Emily's going to come and uh, read for us from Song of Songs. Um, you, you'll remember um, that uh, this is poetry, uh, so full of imagery. Um, it, uh, it also um, is helpfully divided up in the version that we're reading um, into sections identified as he speaking, she speaking, and friends speaking. Um, that's not part of the original, but based on the language of uh, the, the sort of the gender of uh, the voices in the text, um, and so uh, helpful to us um, as uh, we reflect upon it. Emily. The reading today can be found on page 681 in the Church Bibles. It's Song of Songs, and it's starting at chapter 3. That's page 681. All night long, on my bed, I looked for the one my heart loves. I looked for him, but did not find him. I will get up now and go about the city, through its streets and squares. I will search for the one my heart loves. So I looked for him, but did not find him. The watchmen found me as they made their rounds in the city. Have you seen the one my heart loves? Scarcely had I passed them when I found the one my heart loves. I held him and would not let him go till I had brought him to my mother's house, to the room of the one who conceived me. Daughters of Jerusalem, I charge you by the gazelles and by the does of the field, do not arouse or awaken love until it so desires. Who is this coming up from the wilderness like a column of smoke, perfumed with myrrh and incense, made from all the spices of the merchant? Look, it is Solomon's carriage, escorted by sixty warriors, the noblest of Israel, all of them wearing the sword, all experienced in battle, each with his sword at his side, prepared for the terrors of the night. King Solomon made for himself the carriage. He made it of wood from Lebanon. Its post he made of silver, its base of gold. Its seat was upholstered with purple, its interior inlaid with love. Daughters of Jerusalem, come out and look, you daughters of Zion. Look on King Solomon wearing a crown, the crown with which his mother crowned him on the day of his wedding the day his heart rejoiced. How beautiful you are, my darling. Oh, how beautiful. Your eyes behind your veil are doves. Your hair is like a flock of goats descending from the hills of Gilead. Your teeth are like a flock of sheep just shorn, coming up from the washing. Each has its twin, not one of them is alone. Your lips are like a scarlet ribbon. Your mouth is lovely. Your temples behind your veil are like the halves of a pomegranate. Your neck is like the Tower of David, built with courses of stone. On it hang a thousand shields, all of them shields of warriors. Your breasts are like two fawns, like twin fawns of a gazelle that browse among the lilies. Until the day breaks and the shadows flee, I will go to the mountain of myrrh and to the hill of incense. You are altogether beautiful, my darling. There is no flaw in you. Come with me from Lebanon, my bride. 
Come with me from Lebanon. Descend from the crest of Amarna, from the top of Senir, the summit of Hermon, from the lion's dens and the mountain haunts of leopards. You have stolen my heart, my sister, my bride. You have stolen my heart with one glance of your eyes, with one jewel of your necklace. How delightful is your love, my sister, my bride. How much more pleasing is your love than wine and the fragrance, fragrance of your perfume more than any spice. Your lips drop sweetness as the honeycomb, my bride. Milk and honey are under your tongue. The fragrance of your garments is like the fragrance of Lebanon. You are a garden locked up, my sister, my bride. You are a spring enclosed, a sealed fountain. Your plants are an orchard of pomegranates with choice fruits, with henna and nard, nard and saffron, calamus and cinnamon, with every kind of incense tree, with myrrh and aloes and all the finest spices. You are a garden fountain, a well of flowing water streaming down from Lebanon. Awake, north wind, and come, south wind. Blow on my garden that its fragrance may spread everywhere. Let my beloved come into his garden and taste its choicest fruits. I have come into my garden, my sister, my bride. I have gathered my myrrh with my spice. I have eaten my honeycomb and my honey. I have drunk my wine and my milk. Eat, friends, and drink. Drink your fill of love. Thank you, Emily, very much. One of the more harrowing news stories of the past couple of months has been the trial of Larry Nasser. I don't know if you followed it. Larry Nasser was the, uh, the, the doctor to the US Olympic gymnastics team. And to date, over 265 women have come forwards to accuse Larry of sexual assault. Uh, the evidence in the trial was overwhelming. Larry was convicted. And the judge at the end of the trial gave each of his victims a chance to confront their abuser. And there was day after day of a victim speaking to Larry, speaking of how their lives have been affected by his abuse. The most stunning moment was when Rachel Den Hollander stood. She was the last to speak, and she spoke to Larry. Um, if, you've, if you've not watched it, Google it. It is well worth 30 minutes of your time and the shedding of a few tears. Um, but here is one glorious but haunting snippet of what Rachel had to say. Larry, you have shut yourself off from every truly beautiful and good thing in this world that could have and should have brought you joy and fulfillment. And I pity you for it. You could have had everything you pretended to be. Every woman who stood up here truly loved you as an innocent child. Real, genuine love for you. And it did not satisfy I have experienced the soul-satisfying joy of a marriage built on sacrificial love and safety and tenderness and care. I have experienced true intimacy in its deepest joys 
And it is beautiful and sacred and glorious. And that is a joy you have cut yourself off from ever experiencing. And I pity you for it. Rachel is, she's a Christian woman. And as she, she spoke, she, she brilliantly captured the glorious goodness of sexual intimacy, but also the profound brokenness of our experience of it. I'm very aware that uh, these are painful words for many here, painful longings, painful failures, painful suffering. I think that's probably our, our biggest struggle, engaging with the Song of Songs, because there is such wonderful goodness portrayed for us in these verses, but we can't read them without feeling the sharp pain of human realities. Glory and grief are tightly interwoven here. But as we work through the the book, I want to keep encouraging us, all of us, young, old, married, single, contented, or struggling, we mustn't miss the goodness here. God has given us, in his good word to us, he's given us this book, the Song of Songs, literally the greatest of songs. And throughout this book, sexual, intimate love is pictured as a beautiful, a sacred gift from God. The lens with which we view sexual intimacy is so easily distorted. But the Bible is very clear. In the right context of monogamous marriage between a man and a woman. Sex is to be delighted in. It's to be enjoyed and nurtured. We saw at the end of last week, verse 16 of chapter 2, it's the woman speaking. And she says, verse 16, My beloved is mine, and I am his. He browses among the lilies. Until the day breaks and the shadows flee, turn, my beloved, and be like a gazelle or like a young stag on the rugged hills. Now that is not complicated poetic imagery. The wife is urging her husband, let's make love through the night, until the day breaks and the shadows flee. And and you've got this lovely picture of mutuality. She says, my beloved is mine, and I am his. This is husband and wife seeing themselves as belonging to each other, their bodies, not their own but as belonging to each other. You get that same sense in, in 1 Corinthians 7. Paul writes, The wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. It, it's not slavery. It is joyful unity. My beloved is mine, and I am his. Or as we say in the marriage vows, with my body I honour you, all that I am I give to you, and all that I have I share with you. The other person-centeredness here is, is beautifully portrayed. But as, as we arrive at the start of chapter 3, the, the song strikes a more fearful tune. Have a look with me, verse 1 of chapter 3. It's still a woman speaking here. And she says, all night long on my bed... I looked for the one my heart loves. I looked for him but did not find him. I'll get up now and go about the city through its streets and squares. I will search for the one my heart loves. So I looked for him but did not find him. The watchman found me as they made their rounds in the city. Have you seen the one my heart loves? 
Scarcely had I passed them when I found the one my heart loves. I held him and would not let him go till I brought him to my mother's house, to the room of the one who conceived me. Now, it's a, it's a funny transition in the song. Why this sudden panicked scene after words of such devotion? And yet, this is the reality of love. The giving of yourself to another, my beloved is mine and I am his, that mutuality is actually a position of vulnerability. To step into a position of devoted love is to place yourself in a position where you can be hurt, where you can be very hurt. As Wham famously put it, Try and find some more up-to-date music uh, for next week. But y- you know the story. You get the picture. And so as the, as the woman lies on her bed and she plays through these fears on her mind, that's why I've called this section Dangerous Devotion. Because here in the Song of Songs, it, we are being highlighted that the danger, the vulnerability of love, the giving of her heart, the giving of her body, leaves her feeling vulnerable. She knows she can get hurt. That's why the warning comes in verse 5 of chapter 3. She's calling out to her friends and she says, Daughters of Jerusalem, I charge you by the gazelles and the does of the field, do not arouse or awaken love until it so desires. This is dangerous. That the giving of ourself to another, especially the giving of our body to another, Don't go there lightly, she says. This is soul-aching intimacy. And as we start to grasp that, we we start to see why this needs to be a place of determined commitment. That's why God so clearly tells us in his word that the place for sexual intimacy is within a marriage relationship. Within that context, sexual intimacy is like the glue that draws husband and wife together. In other contexts, it's profoundly destructive. It, uh, it reminded me of the day when my mum, and she reached into her bag and uh, took out a bottle to put some eye drops in her eye. And she put a couple of drops in before she realised that the bottle she'd taken out of her handbag was actually a bottle of superglue. It's a bad moment. Uh, thankfully, she works for a doctor's surgery, so help was on hand. Superglue is brilliant stuff, but the context matters. Song of Songs is saying sex is just the same. It's good. It's glorious. The context matters. And yet we're a society where we find it easier to to share a bed with someone than to share a bank account with them. We're wary of our money. We're protective of our financial independence. And yet we hugely underplay the relational vulnerability that comes from sexual intimacy. When God said the place for sexual intimacy is within marriage, he's not being a killjoy. He's being a loving father who hates to see his children get hurt. This is dangerous devotion. But the song continues, verse 6, and I've called this section seductive security. Seductive security. Follow with me. We're we're moving into a wedding scene. The bridegroom is arriving to meet his bride. Remember, they're not linear events. Don't worry, they've just had sex all night and now they're getting married. It's a song. It's not linear history 
Verse 6 of chapter 3. Who is this coming from the wilderness like a column of smoke, perfumed with myrrh and incense, made from all the spices of the merchant? Look, it is Solomon's carriage, escorted by 60 warriors, the noblest of Israel, all of them wearing the sword, all experienced in battle, each with his sword at his side, prepared for the terrors of the night. King Solomon made for himself the carriage. He made it of wood from Lebanon. Its posts he made of silver, its base of gold. Its seat was upholstered with purple, its interior inlaid with love. Daughters of Jerusalem, come out and look, you daughters of Zion. Look on King Solomon wearing a crown, the crown which his mother crowned him on the day of his wedding, on the day his heart rejoiced. So you see again the the emotional transition in the song. We've moved from fearful nighttime panic and now we're picturing the joy of a wedding day. But actually, it's it's a puzzling scene for a wedding day. The bridegroom's carriage, verse 7, is escorted by 60 warriors, the noblest of Israel, all of them wearing the sword, all experienced in battle, each with his sword at his side, prepared for the terrors of the night. I've been to quite a few weddings. I've not been to a wedding like this. Why the warriors? Why the swords here? Because as the bride describes her husband... She is describing her deep desire for security, for safety. She knows she's vulnerable. She's longing to be kept safe. And actually, it's not just her. Jump ahead into chapter 4. Chapter 4, verse 9. As the groom responds, he says, You have stolen my heart, my sister, my bride. You have stolen my heart with one glance of your eyes, one jewel of your necklace. He knows his vulnerability too. His heart is hers. And so the, the longing here is for safety, for security. In um, 2010, Forbes magazine ran a couple of surveys. The surveys were trying to find out what women are looking for in a husband and what men are looking for in a wife. Uh, they're fascinating results, all online. You can have a read. In at number one, on both lists, is a mutual emotional connection, attraction. And you see that displayed visibly throughout this this love song for us. But on both lists, in at number two, interestingly, good looks came in on eighth on the the list of what men look for in a wife. They didn't even feature in the top ten of what women look for in a husband. Yet how much do we fret about that? Anyway, both lists, in at number two, is faithfulness, dependability, Isn't that telling? That at a very deep level, we get the vulnerability of relationships. And we long for safety. Look, it's King Solomon carriage, escorted by 60 warriors, the noblest of Israel, all of them wearing the sword, all experienced in battle, each with his sword at his side, prepared for the terrors of the night. Perhaps just echoing back to the beginning of chapter 3 there, terrors of the night. And don't get confused over the the King Solomon language. Um, Many people have have read this and ended up assuming there must be some sort of love triangle going on in in the book. So chapter one, she's longing for a shepherd boy, but by chapter four, she's marrying King Solomon. And you kind of think, well, what happened to the shepherd boy? I'm pretty convinced it's the same man being spoken of. It's figurative language as the bride lovingly describes her bridegroom in royal terms. My, My prince, my king. There's too much focus on 
exclusivity of love in this book, to, to read it as a fickle love triangle. And actually, we know that the language is figurative, poetic. When, when we read um, chapter 4, verse 9, you have stolen my heart, my sister, my bride. No one's suggesting he's actually marrying his sister. It, it pictures their friendship, the, the closeness of their relationship. The closeness matters because the safety matters. These words, they're a challenge for us, big challenge. They ask us, are we, corporate we, whatever path we're, we're walking along at the moment, will we uphold marriage as a place of safety, security? There are implications here for all of us. Husbands, wives, are you going to honour your spouse's vulnerability with your dependability? Sexual faithfulness, both with your body and your eyes. Will you fight for this devoted loyalty? I was struck in the week thinking through the, the wedding service. There's a lovely moment in the service, right at the end. Bride and groom are sitting here. They've done their vows. They're married. They're, they're ready to head out down the aisle. And they get up and they wheel around together with the groom on the right. He's on the right, traditionally, so that his right hand is free to draw his sword and defend his wife, his bride. Now, I don't know what you, you make of the sort of um, quaintness of that, but I was reflecting. Probably that same right hand, which is there to defend, but it's that hand that controls the computer mouse, as images are browsed, as videos are viewed, which destroy rather than defend. Now, I know it's not just men that struggle here, but I do want to speak specifically to the men. Will we fight for this devoted loyalty? All of us, will, will we help each other in the way we speak, in the way we dress, in our willingness to challenge ungodliness? You see, as brothers and sisters in Christ, we are so interconnected. My godliness matters to you. Your godliness matters to me. So don't worry about whether you might upset me by holding me to account. Worry about whether I'm honouring my wife as I must. If I'm honouring my Lord as I must. Will we pray for marriages? Will we pray for those approaching marriage? For those mourning the loss or lack of marriage? If you are someone who is approaching marriage or maybe longing for marriage... Do you see that the faithfulness that is pictured here, the desire for dependability, that's not just something for in marriage. Surely these verses urge us to be that person now, to let, let our faithfulness and our dependability be our greatest charm. Time and time again, I've seen the same pattern where a struggle for godliness outside of marriage, in singleness, that same struggle wreaks great destruction in marriage, within the vulnerability of marriage. So strive for faithfulness today. There's loads for us to think through here. But don't miss the words. Don't miss the words here. That's what's really struck me as I've read through this song again and again. Words matter. At the end of uh, chapter 4, as the song unfolds, you see verse after verse of glorious affirmation. 
So verse 10 of chapter 4, how delightful is your love, my sister, my bride, how much more pleasing is your love than wine, and the fragrance of your perfume more than any spice. We're going to keep seeing this as we journey through the song, because the affirmations keep coming. Each affirmation is like a brick in the wall building a fortress for the relationship. The words encourage this sense of safety. And yet, how often do our affirmations become silent and our criticisms become loud? It's a dynamic that's always going to bring fear into a relationship. We want words to build a fortress of safety. Dangerous devotion, seductive security. And then as we close, our final heading, climactic consummation. I wasn't quite sure if we could cope with that heading, um, but I went with it anyway, despite the better advice of the office team. Um, Because I think it is what God has given us in his words. We're meant to notice it. Last week I mentioned Hebrew poetry puts the main event right in the middle of the poem. It's partly why we mustn't read these events as chronological. The the position within the poem really matters. That's more important than the order. And Song of Songs, if you count them up, it's got 223 stanzas of poetry, 223 little lines of poetry. That means 111 stanzas come before chapter 5, verse 1. And 111 stanzas follow that verse. Chapter 5, verse 1 is the very heart of this love song. And it is the moment of consummation. At the end of chapter 4, the woman has been saying, verse 16, Awake, north wind, and come, south wind. Blow on my garden, that its fragrance may spread everywhere. Let my beloved come into his garden and taste its choice fruits. Notice again that the mutual language there. My garden, his garden. Little a mutual exchange there. Poetic imagery for her body, which also belongs to him. And then chapter 5, verse 1, he replies, I have come into my garden my sister, my bride. I've gathered my myrrh with my spice. I've eaten my honeycomb and my honey. I have drunk my wine and my milk. And then the friends chime in. Eat, friends, and drink. Drink your fill of love. This is a central moment in the song. Why why focus on this moment? Well, partly to capture the goodness of it. Within the, the safety of the marriage promises, there is glorious beauty here. In the middle of this song, which is in the middle of God's word to us, God is saying sexual intimacy is good. But actually, it demands more. The whole, the whole song demands more. Remember the title of the song, Song of Songs. Literally, the greatest of songs. It's a title that causes us to look beyond human experience to a greater consummation. This moment is central to the song because it pictures for us the great climax of human history. It speaks of the moment when Jesus Christ will return, when he will gather his bride, the church, into his arms, and when he will be gloriously united with her. That's what's being spoken of here. It's an extraordinary truth. If this is the first time you've heard of it, it probably sounds like madness. I get that. But sexual intimacy in all its goodness is a picture for us of a far better moment, a far greater fulfillment. So at the end of the Bible, right at the end of Revelation, another wedding cry 
goes up and we, we read these words. Revelation 19, verse 7. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. For the wedding of the Lamb, that's Jesus, the wedding of the Lamb has come and his bride, that's the church, his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. That is the moment we're really meant to be focusing on. The moment when this brokenness between God and his people, all our sin and our failures that that separate us from a holy God, that sin is forgiven. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. It's a picture of purity. A purity which is given, you see, was given her to wear. All our many and varied failures in this area. My guess is that for each of us, as the light of God's word shines, each of us will be aware of our failures. Certainly these verses have brought me to the point of confession at many points this week. There is hurt. There is pain. There is failure here. And yet, there is wonderful and glorious and eternal hope. For those who who know the vulnerability of intimacy and who have had that vulnerability painfully abused, here we have a groom whose words are steadfast and true, whose faithfulness will not wane. Even death cannot separate us from him. That, That will only increase the intimacy. And he says to us, Jesus says to us, come to me. For those who who long to know the intimacy of this love, for whom wedding days are, are more heartache than joy. Here we have a groom whose love we cannot even begin to imagine. It's one of the puzzles here. I've been wrestling with that this week. This, this longing language of Song of Songs, this deep yearning, sexual desire. This is Jesus Christ saying to each of us, this is the the depth, the intensity of my longing for each of you. I know the hurt, but bring your longings to me. Know know my love, a pure and unadulterated love. Come to me. And for those who carry the guilt of transgression, you've stepped off the safe path God gives us to walk along. Maybe you've caused great hurt and harm in doing so. So easy when we see the filth of our sin to forget the depths of God's grace. The bride that Jesus comes for isn't the locked up garden of chapter 4 verse 12. That's a picture of the bride's virginity on her wedding day. But when God speaks of his people again and again, he, he speaks of us as adulterers, as those who have wandered from his love and have sought pleasure elsewhere. It's not speaking about just a few. It's speaking about all of us. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But to all of us, he says, come to me. Come to me and I will give you fine linen, bright and clean to wear. And I will love you with an unending, unimaginable, unchanging love.
that, that is the great climax here. Devotion, security, and then wonderful fulfillment. So eat, friends, and drink. Drink your fill of his great love. Let's pray together. Our God, our Father, your word is is astonishing. It is challenging. We read and we see our brokenness, our sinfulness. We're reminded of your goodness, your good and perfect law, and our foolishness, our wandering hearts that have taken us away from your good plan. But Father, how we praise you for Jesus, for the lover of our souls, for the one who who shed blood that we might be clean, who gives to us his radiant robe of righteousness, that our, our sin and our shame, the guilt which we all bear, might be washed away. Please, Father, give us joy in him. Help us to long for this great and glorious consummation. In his precious name we pray. Amen. It occurs to me to say, um, in, the, in the midst of uh, this series of talks from Song of Songs, that as John has been making very clear, uh, we're in the territory uh, where, um, where many of us will, will know hurts uh, from the past, um, perhaps hurts in the present, um, that this subject area um, stirs up for us. Um, and so good to say that yeah, as a church, you'll know we're committed to encouraging us that, that with one another we might uh, provide context to, to talk well uh, about these things. Um, so let me encourage you to do that. Uh, if you wanted to get in touch with, um, with somebody, uh, you're not sure who to talk through such an issue with, um, feel free, email me, email um, Rachel Browning or, or catch one of the two of us. Uh, I'm sure we'd be able to think of somebody. Um, where it would be a good context uh, to be talking, if that would be a help to you.